This is the Asade Podcast Channel. Audio pills to get inspired. I'm Per Riviel. I'm new faculty at uh, at Asade, and for me, it's a it's a pleasure uh, to be here today. Especially because you know this is Research Day, and one of the main reasons why they attracted me to to come to Asade was because they were telling me we are really giving. Uh, we are, we are really trying to push research in ESADE, so, so that's why we want to hire you, so they hired me. I, I started in ESADE two days ago, and I'm already giving a talk about my research, so it seems like they are going to exploit me, but I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you for, for the attendance. So basically, my, my brief talk is going to be a little bit a continuation of what we just seen in the sense that, okay, what do we do after, uh, you know, we want, to, we want people to make right decisions. How can we... How, then, how can we learn about how they make decisions? In particular, not only doing questionnaires, which was a little bit what, uh, what they were presenting in the, in the previous talk, but you know, can we move a little bit further? Can we move into doing experiments and, and experiments in context in which people perhaps do not know they are being part of the experiment? So one of the things that I was talking to some of you during the coffee break was, uh, the, the talk was amazing, the example was amazing, but what if we could take the extra step of seeing actual real judges making decisions, you know, observing what they would make, uh, what decisions would they be taking, right, under different conditions, not when they've been given the particular conditions of a questionnaire, but when they're actually facing a real trial, right? Can we do a real field experiment in which we have people not knowing that, that they are being part of a questionnaire, but that they are really making decisions and those decisions matter, right? So I think one of the main reasons why we are here today uh, and why the research day has been oriented into uh, research, into experiments, and into behavioral economics is, of course, because of the award, the Nobel Prize Award to Richard Thaler, Nobel Prize in Economics this year. And uh, in particular, that has changed my life a little bit. I think. Uh, I think Sade would have hired me no matter what, uh, if the Nobel Prize was awarded or not. But one of the things that I've been experiencing in the last six, seven months since the, the prize was announced is that many, many companies and many institutions are getting interested about, uh, about behavioral research and behavioral research through a field experiment, laboratory and field experiments, right? So uh, I'm having a lot of meetings in which I'm trying to convince uh, institutions to, to help me run experiments. This was the case also a year, two years ago. But one, the, the award of the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics to Richard Thaler actually has changed a little bit the bargaining position in, in that negotiation. Before it was me knocking doors to institutions, please allow me to do experiments. You know, they are very interested, very interesting. We are going to learn a lot from them. Now it's more about, oh, this, you know, they gave the Nobel Prize for this kind of thing. So perhaps there's something we as a firm, as an institution, we can learn from this, right? And there can be a fruitful collaboration between academia and firms. And this is basically what I'm trying to convince you today. Okay, so this was the, the announcement, basically. The announcement of the Nobel Prize was for contributions to behavioral economics. So what are behavioral economics? So my view, behavioral economics are three things. In particular, you know, it's a, a cheap way of saying what behavioral economics is about, would be to say, well, we are incorporating insights from psychology into economics. Econo economists, we have a very simple model of how people make decisions that work very well under some particular circumstances, but in others, as we have seen in the previous talk, there are many biases, there are many things that affect our decisions that perhaps are not incorporated into the model economists used 
to say uh, to, to try to study how we make decisions, right? So let's try to incorporate those, that richer psychology that uh, that we have learned from other fields, in particular psychology, but not only psychology, but also sociology, anthropology, etc. Let's try to incorporate it into into economics, right? So that's that's the first idea. The first idea. Let's have psychology and economics combined. The second one is. Once we have done that, we have that intuition, right? Let's develop our models, let's still do economics, let's develop economic models that incorporate that psychology and do not stop there, but actually do the extra step of actually seeing whether those models work, actually running experiments in which we observe how people make decisions. And as I'm going to be discussing today, those experiments could either be in the field or it could be in the laboratory. And both of them have some advantages and disadvantages that I will discuss in a, in a moment. But the most important thing, and I think the reason why many of you outside of academia are here today, is because we can do even further. We can do an extra step, which is try to use that knowledge to actually run large-scale interventions and ideally actually make actual decisions that are better, that are better for our institution, for policy, for our firm. Okay? So, Basically, when I talk about a, uh, an experiment, I'm saying this thing, it's a control situation, so we, can, we are actually designing the type of decisions that people are making, in which individuals, they take actions, they are not only making decisions, but they may be performing some real effort task, or, they, or you may be measuring other things, right? So you are observing real behavior, these are not agents in a mathematical model, these are real people making decisions, right? According to some pre-specified rules that determine their payoffs. So what we mean is that in experiments, one of the things that are very important, especially because we are talking about experiments in economics, is economists, we believe in incentives. Given that we believe in incentives, we don't want people to be answering to some questionnaire just because they think it may be the right answer or this is what it's expected me to do. But I actually, when, I'm, when I, I am a subject in an experiment, I'm taking a decision knowing that if I take these decisions and somebody else takes another decision, that's gonna affect my payoffs. What I mean is that in economic experiments, we don't only pay people to show up so we can do our research, but we pay them conditionally on what they do in the experiment. Such so as if you really care for something, you're gonna try to do that because you think you're gonna earn more money, for example. Incentives don't necessarily need to be money. They can be many other things, and in particular, some of my research is about showing that money is a very good incentive, but money doesn't buy it all. We care about many other things, and we can actually incorporate that into the study of, of behavior, right? Um, one important thing in experiments, and, and if uh, some of you are, are in firms, you would say, okay, in my firm, we are already running experiments. And the answer is, yes, you are trying things. You are testing, and some firms, actually, they do A-B testing, right? What is the, what is the, main, um, the main technology that you are using in that kind of test? The main idea of an experiment is you have two populations, right? That, or you have one population, and you randomize who goes into treatment and who goes into control. This is very similar to a, a medical trial, right? In which some people get the pill and some other people do not get the pill, right? But important, the most important thing here is that the people that are in control or in treatment, right? They have to be identically the same. They have to be the same ex ante, right? There has to be no reason why I actually, no exogenous reason why I was the one who got the pill or didn't get the pill, right? You are comparing two groups that are comparable in all dimensions, they are comparable, they are identical in all dimensions, but the one thing that makes them different, which is the fact that they took the pill or they didn't take the pill. In an economic experiment, either, you know, two populations that are exactly the same, one of them 
has some condition, one condition that is different than people in the, other, in the other condition. The treatment and the control, they differ in just one thing. And this particular uh, aspect that things differ in just one, one and only one thing allows you to try to establish causality. If the behavior of two groups, of two exactly identical groups is the same, but there's only one condition that, that it's affecting them, if at the end you end up observing different behavior, it has to be because of the only thing that makes these two groups different, which is the condition that you are trying to observe. Right? So this is how we establish causality. If we want to learn what is the cause of some phenomena, right? what we do is, if I suspect that this is the cause, okay, some people I subjected to these to this, uh, conditions, some people I don't. And if I observe that they behave differently because of the only thing that I change, it has to be that the reason why they behave differently is because of this thing that I change. Okay? So there's a difference between uh, when we run this type of experiments in the lab and when we do it in the field. Today I'm going to be talking about a couple of experiments in the field, which is more and more the type of research that I'm, that I'm doing lately. And you know, I like this, this sentence that I have here in blue in which I'm saying, Look, first, can we actually run social experiments? Can we run experiments in the lab? At the very beginning, people thought this was not possible, right? Because it was all about, you know, how can I change the conditions? You know, up to some point, a molecule, you know, if I'm doing a, a, an experiment in, in chemistry, right? A molecule, or imagine a, a physics experiment in which you throw a ball into the air. The ball, when it's in the air, it's not going to start asking itself, should I fall or not, right? Should I start spinning or what should I do, right? This is the problem with social, uh, social science experiments, which is the subject of the experiment, it's in itself somebody who is conscious of what he's doing, right? And I think this is one of the things that differentiates a little bit lab experiments than the ideal of a field experiment, which would be having people being the subject of an experiment without knowing it without knowing that they've been affected by it. It's something that we call the demand effect. If you're asking somebody, if you're telling something, somebody, I'm studying this phenomena, you know, perhaps yourself will be affected by, okay, so they are studying this, so this is the way I should be behaving. Think about framing effects, uh, things that we were talking about before, right? So, you know, can we actually run experiments without people knowing they are part of the experiment? Is that ideal? Of course, there's a trade-off between running experiments in the lab in which you can actually design everything very control, in a very controlled way, and you can learn about very specific details, and running things in the field that, as you will see in a couple of examples that I'm going to be presenting, is a mess, but it's an interesting mess. Okay? So we, we will see it in, in a minute. Now, why running experiments in the firm? So imagine, for example, let's do something very uh, marketing-like. Right? Imagine we have to decide the price for a new product. And you actually, uh, you actually ask uh, runners or firms, uh, you, you ask them, how do you actually decide the price? And they tell you stories like this. You say, they say, okay, I observe my competitors, and I decide a price that it's similar or, or a little bit different than the price of my competitors, but I take into account a lot what my competitors are doing. This is something that when I hear it, I become very nervous because it goes completely against what I'm trying to teach in my economic classes. In economics, what we try to tell people is, if you're selling a product, you actually want to become a monopolist. You want to say, hey, I am the only one who is offering this service who is actually selling this, this product, right? So I'm different. So if I'm different, if my product is so much different, it's so much better than my competitors, why should I use the price of my competitors as a reference? It shouldn't be, because you are trying to convince your audience that actually your product is much, much better. So why looking at others? 
Let's do other things. Well, our firm traditionally has priced uh, these products in this range. Well, yeah, but your product is new, it's, it's disruptive, it's challenging. Why using the tradition, right? Intuition, I think this more or less should be this price. Well, that's not very scientific, right? So what I'm saying is, why not running an experiment? Why not having the same price offered to different people without knowing uh, that, they are, that you're running an experiment. Why not trying to sell your product in a small scale? Some days you sell it at a, at a price, other days at another price, and you actually find the optimal price by you know, having people experience the same product at different prices, and you try to observe when do they buy most. Or if you want to go the, the extra step, as I will show in a, in, a, in a minute, why if you want to also see the relationship between the price and how much they enjoy the product? Let's leave that there for a second because I will introduce it in a minute. Okay, so what I'm saying is with experiments we can take evidence-based decisions, right? Not only we can, have, we can try to see if, we're, if our intuition of whether something works or not actually works, but we can, do, we can go a little bit extra so we can measure the effect. We can make the effect specific to the experimental conditions that you are controlling, right? And as I was saying before, you can also establish causality. And of course, it's, um, it's, a, it's a source of uh, having a collaboration between firm and academia, which is also, it's always very nice. I, one of the things that I'm seeing, the more experiments I'm running with institutions is that there's a lot we can learn from firms. There's a lot firms can learn from us, not, I don't know if from me, but in general, from, from us, you know? So it's a collaboration that it's always interesting as long as we are able to, to speak the same language. So John Lees, one of uh, the most prominent uh, uh, Experiment, experimental economist, and in particular, he's very well known for running, for being one of the pioneers in running experiments in, in firms. He has this uh, great paper in which he has a list. Uh, it's called it's a list, John List. So uh, he he has this this uh, paper talk uh, called. So you want to run a field experiment, what, what are the things you should think about, right? So I took that as an inspiration. I just brought the list of the things that I'm, uh, I'm talking about. I, I use it as an inspiration of, of things that are important to consider when you are talking about this collaboration between firms and academia. The first one is, the very first thing academics can, can put into the table is we have theories. We, have, we don't only have intuitions, we actually have developed theories. We, hopefully we have thought deeply about the issues that we are trying to see. So we have a theory to support what, what we're doing, but of course, the, the academic who goes into running a field experiment, sometimes he's not the expert in that particular field. So one of the advices that John Lees gives is become an expert, right? Actually, his very first field experiments were about, were about uh, Chromos, trading cards, right? Why? Because he's actually a trading card addict. He loves the sports cards, right? So he, he ran the very first experiments on something he knew about, because then it was not only about an academic theory that he had in mind, but he also knew the market very well. This actually helps the conversation to be much more fruitful. One of the problems uh, in running field experiments is having control groups. Remember, when I was talking about experiment, I was saying control, treatment. So some of the problems that I have when I suggest experiments to firms is that they get, sometimes they, they don't listen to me, but many times they get very, very excited about the new treatment, the new condition that, I, that we are going to run, and they say, okay, let's run it. You know, let, let's don't do the experiment. Let's everybody be affected by this new condition. And I say, no. First, we don't know if it's going to work, and even if we know we have very strong intuition that it's going to work, we want to compare it to a control group to which we are not doing anything. 
right? Why? For two reasons. One is such as we can measure how, how we can measure the size of the effect in the first place, and second, and this is importantly, because otherwise we wouldn't know what's going on there, right? One other problem, sufficient, the, the opposite problem, having sufficient sample sizes. You want to run statistics. You want to actually measure whether the, the effect is, is, is sustainable. So you, do, you want to have enough people in these uh, things. Another problem with running, or another issue with running these field experiments is you better get everybody very enthusiastic about your experiment because the internal politics of firms and institutions are complicated. You know, I have experienced sometimes that they bring me there as an expert who is going to suggest the solution, right? And somebody who, was, who is actually internal, who belongs to the organization says, look, this guy is taking my job. Like, this guy knows nothing about what he's doing. And my defense in that kind of uh, setting is always to say, look, I don't have the answers. This is very important. The person running the experiment, they don't have the answers. In many cases, they have an intuition, but they want to run the experiment to have the answer. We have the method, not the answer, and this is very important, right? So we can teach you how to run experiments, such as later you can run them on, in, on your own and you don't need us. But believe me, there are still some things that we can teach you. The same, otherwise, the same, of course. Um, this is all about, yeah, the organizational dynamics. They should be interested in your results. It's important to run the experiments first, in particular because one of the difficulties of convincing people, let's have some, uh, some of your customers under, under control, some of your customers under treatment. Running the experiment, of course, they always think about the cost. How much is this experiment going to cost you? And John Lee talks about the trick here is to run, uh, to change a little bit the discussion about the cost of running an experiment. Why? Because the real cost is not really how much it costs you to have some people under control and some people under treatment. The real cost is the cost of the money that you are not earning, right? Because you, don't, you may not be making the optimal decision, right? So it's, it's, it's a cost that is more difficult to see because you are not seeing that you're losing money, but really you're losing money with respect to the optimal decision you could be taking, right? Uh, you don't have all the answers. Sometimes, you know, in this collaboration, of course, and I'll show you an example in a second, what you're interested in may not be the same that the organization is interested, but there are many times that there are things in common that make this uh, conversation interesting. Don't capture by the organization. Be careful about ethical concerns and fairness concerns. Sometimes, you know, when you're thinking about a new policy instrument and you think it's going to work, sometimes, many times, you have the problem of if it's going to work, why do I have the same as in a, in a medical trial, right? Why do I have to give placebo to some people? You know, if I know that the drug works, why do I have to, to do the experiment first in which people are not suggested to new, this new drug that may be working? Well, how you address those concerns, so, so those ethical concerns is important, and in particular, that's why IRB uh, approval is needed in most of the experiments that we are doing. We can, we can have a discussion about ethics uh, later. But before that, I want to show you an example of my own research. I love this picture, uh, not because I look particularly good, I was fatter than I am right now, but because I, I wear a lab coat, right? So I really feel like a scientist here, and you will see the reason for a second. So that's one of my research assistants and PhD students and myself. So let me tell you just two simple examples. So the first one is, 
Okay, firms that do not really know whether uh, they want to have information from their customers and they want to send, they, they send this customer service and they want to increase how many people answer to these things, right? How many times you have received something in the mail saying, could you please answer a few questions? And you say, okay, I would not do it, right? So this particular firm, a large supermarket firm in the US, was interested in raising the number of people who were answering these questionnaires, right? And they were wondering, should we pay them to do this? Should incentives, monetary incentives work or not? And the interesting question and what they allow us to do when we look at the, at the literature, we realize that actually it, this has not been answered in the literature. Some firms pay for, uh, for doing these surveys, some firms don't pay, some uh, firms pay a little bit, some firms pay very little. So we were wondering, what is the, should we pay or not? How much should we pay? And in particular, we introduced a, th a third thing, which is how should we pay? Should we just pay, you know, once you have answered the questionnaire, I pay you something, I promise you to pay you something if you answer the questionnaire, or should a, dif a different mechanism work in which, you know, instead of promising you to pay you money, I pay you money ex ante. Once you receive the, the letter, the ask about uh, filling up the, the questionnaire, imagine that they tell you, in any case, here there's some money, right, that you can keep, no matter whether you answer or not. Will this work or not? Psychologically or behaviorally, this could work because in a sense, you know, they are giving you money for free. And in a sense, you may be saying, okay, come on, I shouldn't take it for free. I should answer this thing. Or it could go the other way. It could be that you feel bad about taking, taking the money and you actually try to return it. In our experiment, only three people tried to return the money and they went to great lengths. But most of the people kept the money. Some of them actually answer, some of them don't. But what does it really work better? The nice thing of doing this with a real firm, one of the nicest things is actually that the firm pay for the incentive, uh, pay for, for the experiment, and, and they were paying, they allow us to run many, many different treatments. So here we don't have treatment and control. We actually have control, which is sending the survey with no money, but then we have many, many treatments. We have 60 treatments, right? What does it mean? Well, it means that to some people, we pay them $1 to answer these questionnaires. To some other people, $2, $3, all the way up to $30. And not only that, but to some people, we promise to pay them that money uh, if they answer the questionnaire. To other people, we actually send them the money in the envelope, the real money, they get it, right? And then we observe whether they answer or not. I call this, uh, this paper, I call it my one graph paper. Why? Because the results are you can see them, you're going to see them in, in just one graph, very simple. But before I show you the results, I want you to think a little bit for 10 seconds. What do you think would work better? Would you pay or not pay in order to raise how many people answer these things? Would you pay or not pay? And if you decide to pay, how much would you pay? Would it be $1, $2, And not only that, but not only how much, but in which way would you do it? Would you do it conditional on people answering or actually would you do it you give the money for free, you give it to everybody, and then perhaps this behavioral mechanism works and people feel guilty about taking the money and it would work. What would you do? Any guess? What is the best thing to do? Okay, let's show the results because everybody is very shy. Okay, so these are the results. Let me uh, move you through, through them very easily. If you look at the uh, horizontal axis, the control actually is just having zero euros, right? Not paying at all. And here we have the response rate. So what we see is that when we don't offer any money, only 7% of the people respond to these surveys, right? The interesting thing is take the red line, 
right? Which is when you promise to pay, to pay people for answering this survey. And the very first thing you see is that low incentives don't work very well. If you promise people to pay them $1, actually the response rate goes down instead of up, right? It's a little bit like an insult, right? They tell you, okay, fill up this questionnaire and if you do it, I will pay you $1. Well, it's going to take me half an hour to do this. So for $1, I will not do it. And actually, people get offended that they don't do it. For $2, it's still lower than paying $0. It's only when you go back to $3 that you get the equivalent response rate as not paying at all. And then from then on, it basically works as economists think incentives work. The more you offer to pay me, the more people respond to it. Right? Interestingly, you know, $1, when you promise to pay $1, it's seen as an insult. But when you actually put $1 in the envelope, actually doubles the response rate. So $1 doesn't mean the same if you promise $1 that if you put it in the envelope. Actually, money in the envelope raises the response rate by a lot, but then it's much flatter. Meaning, if you're going to put money in the envelope, it doesn't matter so much how much money you put in the envelope, but what matters is just the fact that you were nice to somebody. You were nice, you didn't have to put money in the envelope, and then, just because you put it, then you raise the response rate. But how much money you put doesn't really change the response rate. Right? So this gives, you, this gives the, the firm a lot of reasoning to say, OK, so depending on which response rate we want, to, we want to achieve, we may be using one mechanism or the other. Notice that these two um, methods, they are not straightforward uh, comparable. Why? Because, of course, in the blue line, when you're putting money in the envelope, you're putting money in the envelope to absolutely everybody including those who do not respond. So the blue treatment is much more expensive than the red one, which is only conditional to those who are responding. So, you know, the particulars of how you do this are important. One thing that I was telling you before about the interest between your academic uh, research and your firm uh, consultant uh, work, right, is that sometimes the interests are not the same. And sometimes, you know, for example, this firm, Actually, this paper was well published, and I'm very proud of it. Uh, but it would, I think it would have been much better published if actually some of the data that I have stored in my laptop, I would have been allowed to publish. So it's very important in this collaboration to agree on what's going to be published or not. Why? Because this firm, they don't only know this after we run this experiment. They also know, you know the demographics of the people who are answering to these questionnaires. So they actually know that the you know, white middle-class woman from a rural area right, responds to this particular incentive much better than the uh, I know, young black men from a urban era. Right? So, so they have many more demographics, but of course, they didn't want us to publish that. Why? Because they didn't want their uh, competitors to learn it. So there's always an agreement on what is going to be published, what's not going to be published, what the firm learns, what do you learn, what, in general, we all learn from the publication of this experiment. Let me show you my second experiment. Yes? Sure. So, of course, in terms of this one-time experiment, this experiment was expensive, but they learned a lot. They learned so much that now, every time that they are doing a questionnaire, they are using different incentive mechanisms. So, in particular, depending on the response rate they want to achieve, and, and in particular, the type of responses, the, the type of population they want to address, they are changing the type of incentives that they are offering. So this experiment didn't give, us, they di didn't give them a unique answer. It told them that, you know, in these conditions you want to do this, in these other conditions you want to do that. Okay? Let me show you this second example. 
uh, uh, which also shows a little bit the collaboration with the firm and academia. This is a project that I actually did. Uh, I it all started with the following video. It's a two-minute video that I think will be uh, very useful to understand what we're talking about. A mediados de 2013, la industria del arte en España sufrió uno de los golpes más grandes de todos los tiempos. El gobierno decidió cambiar el impuesto de los espectáculos teatrales del 8 al 21%, logrando la mayor sangría de espectadores que se recuerde. Un 30% menos de espectadores en tan solo un año. La gente se volcó a consumir entretenimiento probado masivamente como los popmasters americanos. Ante esa realidad, la compañía independiente de comedia teatraneo decidió tomárselo con humor e inventar algo. Pay per laugh, the first comedy shows where you only pay for what you consume. We fitted each seat with a facial recognition system that detects the smile and proposed the following deal to spectators. Entrance will be totally free. If the show produces no laughs, you don't pay anything. However, if you laugh, you have to pay for each smile. Each smile produced is worth 30 euro cents, something that in this day and age is quite a reasonable price. At the end of the show, the spectator could check their laughter account before paying and even share it on social networks. And so that no one would cry for having laughed more than they could afford, the maximum amount to pay was 80 laughs for 24 euros. The average price of the ticket increased by 6 euros. The system was covered by the main national media outlets, and this produced 35% more spectators. Each paper laugh show produced 28,000 euros more ticket money than was normally taken. Currently, the system is being copied in other theatres in Spain. A mobile phone app was created as a system of payment, and the first season ticket was launched for the number of laughs, not shows. We should also not write off the paper cry. Or paper what the fuck system. What the fuck? What the fuck? Or maybe not. Paper laugh. The first comedy shows where you only pay for what you consume. Okay, so what does this have to do with my research, right? <laughs> how, how this all started. So this is actually a video that uh, um, you know, a marketing company was, was doing to compete in something that it's called the Cannes Lions, which are the, the actual international prices for advertising. And just to show off a little bit, just to show you that with this video, we actually earned 14 of these prices, right? So this was the best week of my life. We spent one week in Cannes, you know, and being the stars of a, of a publicity festival. And, you know, I can tell you some stories later in the, in the break. But, you know, the important thing is this was not my idea. This company was already doing this video, but all that you are seeing in the video is actually fake. It's not true. Right? All this data, this economic data that they are showing is not true. They were doing it just as a creativity idea how to think about this problem. But of course, we saw it as, a, as, a, as an opportunity to actually try to measure something that economists are very interested about, which is what is the, not only this mechanism of pricing, which, by the way, I think it would not work. You know, if you have an iPad in front of you measuring how many times you're laughing, and that's going to determine how much they are paying you, how much you're going to end up paying, you probably do like this, right? And then you pay nothing, but you can still laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Okay? So I don't think this system works. But it got us thinking into other alternative pricing systems, and in particular something that some of my co-authors have studied before, which is something called pay what you want. Pay what you want is not pay per laugh. You're not, you're, you don't have to pay per each smile. But pay what you want is a system in which basically you book your ticket, you see the show, and after you've seen the show, you, you can pay whatever you want. 
Of course, many of you are thinking, okay, you know, I enjoy Pedro's stock, but if I had to pay for it, even if I enjoy it a lot, I would pay zero. Well, it turns out that it doesn't work like that. There are successful companies, there's a successful company, theater company here in Barcelona that actually is working under this, this system. We contacted them and uh, they are, they're making money out of it. Actually, the average price for this, kind of, uh, for this kind of show, it's around 10 euros, and they are getting more. They are getting around 14 euros. So we saw this as an opportunity to do some research. What is the research that we saw? Okay, so we wanted to measure whether there's a relationship between how much you would be willing to pay for, for a show, right, and how much you enjoy the show. In order to do that, what we do, and I have to rush a little bit, but I can tell you later a little bit more. In order to do that, what we do is actually we measure, let me skip a few things, with a real show, with people coming to see the show, this is regular audience that doesn't know they are being part of an experiment. Actually, what we do is we allow them to, we measure how much they are willing to pay by how much they end up paying after seeing the show, right? But we also want to measure how much they enjoy it. And we did it in two ways. The first one is the traditional way some, somebody from marketing would do it, which is with questionnaires. We had people, you know, we asked people how much did you enjoy the show. And importantly, we also asked them how much they expected to enjoy the show before. Such as we actually observe in the data that there's a relationship between the, how much they end up paying and the gap between how much they expected to enjoy it and how much they ended up enjoying the show. Right? What matters is not how much, oh, I like it, so I pay more, but I like it more than I expected, and then they pay more. And we actually can measure how much more they, they pay. Interestingly, so that's us in the theater. Sorry if you cannot see the picture very clearly. That's me you know, explaining the questionnaire. We had a second measure, a more direct way of measuring how much you enjoy it, which is this idea of the video that you were seeing, which is not only people were answering these questionnaires, but also we were videotaping the audience of the shows. And we connected the video with a facial recognition software that tells us you know, whether you are enjoying the show more or less. Right? In particular, this was a comedy, so we are measuring how intense and how much you are, you are laughing while you're seeing the comedy and at which moments. Of course, the data is a mess, and we try to analyze it, and we are still thinking about how to analyze it, and we are having some troubles. But you know, it helps us establish this relationship between how much people pay and how much they are enjoying a show in a way that is not affected by just the fact that we are giving them a questionnaire, but it's a more direct way. Just to... Um, Sorry, we did a, a final thing which was a little bit crazy, uh, but the, this, this theater production company, they were happy with doing it, which is we actually give drugs to the audience, right? So why did we do that? Well, uh, we, uh, the, the whole show was about drugs. So in order to get people into the mind of that, we tell them that we were actually running an experiment in which we were giving a pill to the subject. We were giving pills and we were saying, we're studying whether, take, whether you taking this pill make you enjoy the play better. Right? And we were running it as a real experiment. It's a meta-experiment, but it's an experiment in itself. So some people were getting a placebo, some people were getting a pill that we were telling them would make them enjoy the play better. Right? Now, of course, this was also a placebo. Both were sugar pills. Okay? We were not given real drugs. And, and in particular, it's, it's particularly interesting to see that 95% of the people who came to see the show, they actually took the drug. Which tells you whether perhaps they didn't believe me, right? Or perhaps, you know, Barcelona people are very interesting. And I don't know. But what we find, and we are still uh, looking at the data here, but one of the things that we are trying to see, uh, we think we find, is that actually just telling you that if you take this pill, you're going to enjoy the play better, actually raises your expectations, 
raises how much you claim that you enjoy it, and also raises how much you end up paying. So what is our pill? Our pill is advertisement, it's publicity. You know, our pill is just telling you, buy my product, you will feel better. Exactly what every commercial does, right? A commercial gives you some information about the product and also tells you, if you buy this coffee, you're gonna become George Clooney. Well, our pill is telling you, you become George Clooney, right? You're gonna feel great, but it actually works. That's what we're trying to measure here, okay? I don't have time to, to go through this, but uh, I have, I'm now involved in many, many other uh, projects, field projects with firms and with, uh, with some institutions. Some of them I'm doing it for research. Some of them I'm doing it for consultancy fees, so for money if you want. Some of them are doing it for both. So there's always a possibility to, to, to find a, a way to collaborate in these things. If you are interested in, in this type of, of research, I recommend, this book was already mentioned this morning, but I would recommend the very first book, The Y-Axis. Here you have the, the, the Spanish uh, version of those books. But The Y-Axis is a book that really tells this message of, and gives very good examples of why you know, it's interesting to run experiments and to make decisions knowing, you know, having tested whether they work or not and how they work. Right? You have from Richard Taylor, the recent Nobel Prize, you have a, a popular science book in which he tells the whole history of behavioral economics and makes a very strong points. You also have the, the story of one of the agencies that the British government created to actually try to apply behavioral economics to decision making, to policy. Right? So these are four books that I recommend. My mother-in-law, who is 90, have read them all and she enjoy them. So, you know, it's something that is not very deep, or it, it's very deep, but it's written in a very nice way. And if you're still interested about thi these things, please ask questions, send me an email, or follow me on Twitter, in which I talk about these things. And I also write in this uh, economics blog called Nada's Gratis. I'm one of the editors in which we try to actually bring, you know, research, uh, academic research into more, you know, in, in a divulgative way such as people can understand it. And this is the type of things I talk about. So please follow the blog. Thank you very much. I, I, I teach, I just finished, and some of my students are here on the PhD program uh, about uh, quantitative research designs. So you're in, your talk has been, I think, the most mar marvelous gift you can provide to me. Uh, just one question, to, to, to not to mistake my students. Uh, well, in the Jones list, please help me measurement is, was not there, and, and that's a problem, and, and, and I am the one who measures things here. And, and, but, but I didn't catch how did you introduce random assignment in your experiments, neither in the, none in the, in the first one, in the males, how did you do, but can you elaborate a bit on this? Okay, that, that's, that's a great question. So in the first experiment, random assignment, of course, random assignment is always something that it's difficult to convince firms to, to do in many situations. In, let me give you examples of the two cases. In the first case, you know, it was very simple because these were the customers, all the subject pool were the customers of this large supermarket store that uh, produces all around the US, right? And actually, you know, if you, are, um, uh, if you buy frequently in a supermarket, you are a member of their club card. 
So actually, we have random assignment through the numbers in their clue card. So some people were given the $1 conditional on responding treatment, and some other the $50 or the $30 unconditional, whatever. And that was completely uh, assignment, given the random. Given that they are operating all across the US, and the size of our experiment, which it involved 4,000 people, but this is all across the US, one of the nice things is that nobody knew that somebody was in a different condition. The other thing that it's important, I was talking about control and treatment. So in the, in the theater experiment, right, we want to compare one thing that I was very worried about at the beginning was, would my intervention, you, the fact that I'm giving you a questionnaire, that I'm with a lab coat, I'm giving you these pills, would affect people. So I need to have a control. I need to compare. So the first thing is that this play was run, uh, uh, was in the theaters for 40 nights. We only ran the experiment for 20 nights. So we have the first 20 nights to compare how much people were paying with no experimental conditions. But more importantly, we also had control groups the days in which I was running the experiment. Why? Because when I was telling you we were videotaping the audience, the audience was seated in a U-shape in which the camera was only taking people in this side, and some other people were here and here, and they were not on camera. Also, because they didn't want to be on camera, right? But we can, we can compare whether those people who were on camera and they were doing the questionnaires, et cetera, do they pay differently than the people who are not here? Or the people who were in a day in which there was no experiment. So we have two control groups, if you want. And one of the things that we see is, first, the random assignment occur because when people arrived to the theater, we didn't just get the early comers and they would go into the experiment. No, I was in constant intervals of time. I was saying, okay, this person, I will ask them. And then two minutes later, this person, I will ask them. So I have as many early comers as late comers, which may influence, right? The early comers may be the ones who really wanted to see the play, and these ones, they don't care so much. So we, we took care of all those things, and we actually had the, the proper control groups. So, thank you. We are good friends, so. Jose, you can send me an email. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Esade, inspiring futures.